open your Bibles up to Daniel chapter number three, and I hope you have a Bible with you. If not, get your phone out, put it on silence or airplane, airplane mode, but uh, I don't want to Bible shame you here this morning, but hopefully you all have a Bible. Get it out. We're going to use it this morning. We're going to go through the entire chapter of Daniel chapter three. After last week, I know that scares some of you, but I think it should be okay. Am I, am I okay up here? Can you hear me okay? Okay, I feel a little bit. Maybe turn me up a little bit. I don't know. A little bit down. Daniel chapter 3. Imagine the year is 600 BC. There are four 10-year-old Jewish boys sitting at the feet of a rabbi in Jerusalem. King Josiah is on the throne. He has torn down all the idols in the temple, and now he has instituted, reinstituted the worship of the Lord, the worship of Yahweh. Jeremiah the prophet is in the streets, and he's preaching, and these young men are learning from God's word. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, the names they were given by their parents in honor to the true Lord, Yahweh. This was the likely scenario for these four men when they were young men, when they were in their elementary years. At some point, they were taught about the Lord. At some point, they were taught the scriptures. We don't know if it was how that, was, how that looked. Was, was it with a rabbi? Was it in the temple? Was it with their parents? Not really completely certain. But as a young Jewish boy, they would typically at that time would have learned from a rabbi would have memorized much of the Pentateuch. They would have heard the stories of old. They would have gone through the ten laws of Moses that you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Each morning, each evening, they would have recited the Shema, which is, which is Daniel, or sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Every morning, every evening, they would have repeated that, remembering they are to worship God alone, and he alone deserves their full honor and adoration. And I can imagine these boys sitting at the foot of some rabbi and this rabbi pleading with these boys, boys, remember, remember you're to only worship God. Remember the, the men and women of old. Remember people like Abraham who, who trusted God and Joseph and David. Women like, like Deborah and Hannah. I can imagine these boys going out in the street and hearing the preaching of Jeremiah to follow the Lord, to worship only the Lord. And then, of course, we have learned that a couple, weeks, a couple weeks ago we learned that at the age of 15, around that age, these boys were taken away into captivity into Babylon. And what a different world that was. In Babylon, they worshipped the sun, the moon, the planets. There were temples everywhere in the middle of their city. This is a depiction of what it might have looked at. In the middle of their city, there was this huge temple to their chief god, Marduk. Everyone would have sacrificed gods. Everyone would have praised the name of Marduk. That was normal. That was normal. 
It was normal for men to go to temples and to, to fulfill their lusts with priestess and prostitutes. That was what everyone did. And here, these four men show up, these four Jewish men show up and say they will only worship the one true God. And on top of that, they work for the king. And if you work for the king, you believe like the king. Because if you don't, you're anti-Babylonian. You are an anarchist. And so to ensure their allegiance, they, he changed their names to Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, those were names dedicated to their idols, to their Babylonian gods. And so in Daniel chapter 2, we found out that they got promoted in the kingdom. In fact, look down in Daniel 2. We briefly touched on this last week. Daniel 2, God providentially put Daniel in the highest position in the court of the king. Daniel 2.48, the Bible says, Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Then in verse 49, Daniel requested that the king, that he appoint Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Babylonian names, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. So here these guys now are in positions of power and how much harder, therefore, would it be to worship God in a position where you are now targeted, now people see you? I mean, think about in our country, we supposedly live in a predominantly Christian society, and if there are Christians who are in high power, uh, positions of power and leadership, think of how they're mocked and treated, and think about these guys. I mean, they're the only monotheists around. They're the weirdos. They're the the odd ducks of society, yet by God's grace, they committed to following the Lord. And I think the point of Daniel chapter 3 is to highlight the right that God has to be exclusively worshipped. The right that God has to be exclusively worshipped. You see, it wasn't just that they worshipped Yahweh. It was that they worshipped him alone. I mean, for the Babylonians, what's another god among, you know, a couple hundred? Let's go ahead and throw Yahweh in there. But they believed that there was only one true God. All the other gods were false. They believed that there was one way God spoke, and that was through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, not through stars or mediums. It's interesting to consider Isaiah wrote... In Isaiah 45, a hundred years previous, these boys being deported and kidnapped. And he actually wrote to King Cyrus, who was a later king. He wrote to those in exile and to those who were going to be under the authority of these kings. And this is, the, this is the message that God wanted to get across through men like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Turn to me. And be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. That right there is the message that God wanted to preach through these guys right here. And I think that's the message we see in Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3 is about the worship of God alone. And I'm going to say this morning a, a phrase over and over. I want you to think about this. And this is the truth I think 
This is the truth I want us to get from this text. And that is that there are only really two choices on the shelf. Worship God or worship self. I heard this, something similar to this at a camp a number of years ago. So I thought I would use it this morning to help us consider the truth of this passage. There are only two choices on the shelf. Worship God or worship self. In chapter 3 here, we see the word worship used 11 times. Over and over, we hear this call to fall down and worship. What is worship? I said this morning, we are coming here to gather to worship. One of our songs, we sang that we are, we are going to worship. What is worship? People around this world today, maybe throughout this week, will go to some place to worship. Well, worship is basically giving honor and obedience to that which you value most. It's submission to that which you think should rule your heart and rule your life. So what I want to do in this text, I want to demonstrate to you that the king and really all those people that were there, they bowed before this idol. The king bowed before himself. Really, all of them were worshiping themselves. Even as those people bowed to the idols, their worship was truly inward, and they were just demonstrating that self was their true God. They worshipped those those idols in self-service so they could get something for themselves and really exalt their they were exalted in their own minds and their own hearts before and above God. And God calls us to worship him alone. And so we're going to see in this text how these Three men chose the worship of God instead of the worship of self. There are only two choices on the shelf. Worship God or worship self. So look down in chapter number one. I'm sorry, chapter uh, three, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an idol, an image, I'm sorry, an image of gold. Now, we'll just stop right there. That word image means likeness. The question is, what was this idol? What did it look like? What did this large statue look like? Well, obviously, it was made of gold. So probably was made of stone or wood and overlaid with gold. A a large gold statue wouldn't stand up on its own. It could have looked like King Nebuchadnezzar. It could be that from King Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he remade this statue and it looked like him. It could be that it was another god. We really don't know. All we know is that it was a likeness of something. I I tend to believe that he actually made a statue of himself. We'll see some reasons for that in this text here. But in the end, we really don't know what it looked like. But we do know that it sparkled, it gleamed in the Middle Eastern sun. So look at verse 1. It says its height, and its, its height was 60 cubits in breadth, Six cubits, so that's 90 feet tall and nine feet wide. So this is a massive statue. Then it says, he set it in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Archaeologists think they know where this area is and actually found a large brick platform in this area, very a, a flat area where a lot of people could gather. And so the Scripture goes on to say in verse 2 that King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps and prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers 
and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the province. In other words, if you're in government, you're there. He said to come to the dedication of the image of the king, sorry, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps and prefects and the governors and the counselors and the treasurers and the justices and the magistrates and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I want you to imagine the thousands of people out there. I mean, this, this is representing all these governing officials. Like we're talking about, we're talking about the Olympic ceremony. And this is a dedication to an idol that he has erected in the, in the desert there. Jewish tradition says that this event took place 19 years into the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar in the year 586 BC. So we don't know exactly when it was, but they actually date it around the time when King Nebuchadnezzar came and he leveled the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem rebelled again against the king, and so he said, I had enough. So literally, the whole city was flattened by their, their military. And in his mercy, he brought back a large population back to Babylon, and they resettled there. So this ceremony possibly could be a celebration of the king's victories, but also a way to force the conquered foes to bow before him. And so I, I imagine it wasn't just those three Jewish men out there in that crowd. There must have been other Jewish people that were around as well. So look down in verse 4, a herald gets up, and the herald proclaimed aloud. So imagine these thousands of people around this, this 90-foot-tall, golden, gleaming statue. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music. In other words, they got a pretty awesome band out there. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This ceremony, like I said earlier, was, took place in a plain. And actually in the Middle East, many of these types of plains, especially back in the ancient times, there were places where they would actually have uh, brick kilns. And so there was a, a large flat area. Brick was very popular for a building material in Babylon. In fact, this was in 19, the 1930s, the Germans went to Iraq, which was where Babylon was, and they found this gate uh, that was called the Ishtar Gate. And of course, like Europeans loved to do back then, they they excavated it and took it back to Germany and set it up in a museum. So that's actually the gate that Daniel would have walked through. You can see it's made of brick. And if you go over to Iraq, I don't know if it's still there, but in 2008 there was a picture of this right here. This is um, a brick kiln. So you can see all those bricks that are laying down there. It's a flat plain. And in the background you see the, the fiery furnace, if you could say it that way. So I want you to imagine thousands of people coming to a plane like this. There's a fiery furnace in the background. The smoke is coming out of it. And here the king is saying, when the music plays, you bow down. Now that's motivation for you. Look at verse 7. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, and all the peoples, 
nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Think of the peer pressure that would have been out there. All these people standing there, and, and here's the music. The music stirs the emotion, the, the golden idol. It, it moves the soul to want to be inspired, and the smoke in the background is motivating you to bow down. And everybody is doing it. It's what's normal. It's what's expected. And they all fall down except for these three Jewish men. And for them, they had no choice in their heart but to follow God and to not bow. There are two choices on the shelf. They chose to worship God and not to worship worship. I spelled that wrong, didn't I? That's going to really bother you the whole time, isn't it? <laughs> Boy, that's a copy and paste there right there. I looked at it in here and I thought, that's, like, that's messed up. It's like, that's really going to bother me too now. Well, you have to pretend that uh, it says shelf. I want you to think about like, how, is it that, how is it that there are only two choices in life? There's worshiping God or worshiping self. I mean, what was, it, what was it about bowing before an idol that would be worship to self? Because you think about it. It's just a piece of metal up there, isn't it? I mean, what's the, it's it just bending your knees and going to the ground. It's just actions. There's nothing magical about it. It's not, is it really a problem? What's, how is it that bowing to that idol would be worship of self? Well, to bow would have been to reject God's word. It would have been to exalt yourself above God and to say, God, I get to call the shots. I'm living by my own desires. I'm going to submit to my will and not to yours. And really what you're doing is you're setting yourself up as God. And so if, if they were to worship that idol, they would therefore be rejecting God and his word and his will and serving themselves. To worship self means that we submit to our own will. We live according to our own desires. To worship God means we say, God, I alone, or you alone, are the one I'm to submit to. I submit to you. I submit to your word. I sacrifice my life, my rights, my desires in obedience to you. And I imagine that as those guys were standing there, that there'd be a lot of temptations to make excuses to bow, wouldn't there? I can imagine that some of those Jewish people that were out there, that if, if they did bow, that they had some of these temptations in their heart. I can imagine they were tempted with things like this. If I bow, then I'll die. And God doesn't want me to die, right? I mean, think of all the life I could live for God. If I just, if I just bow, then and I just pretend in my heart that I'm just, you know, kneeling down and maybe fixing something on the ground, you know? But if you were to bow and disobey God in that way, the reality is that there's another idol that you would have set up, and it's the idol of survival. In other words, I will sin against God. I'm willing to sin against God as long as I can survive, as long as I can keep what I want. How many people bow to this idol of survival? You know, I... I'll tell a lie at work if it gives me, if I'm able to keep my job. Or if I can have more money, then I'll lie on my taxes. Or what about maybe they thought to themselves, what about my friends? Or maybe if they had family that were there, what about my family? If I, if I, if I bow to my family, if I bow, then I can save my life and 
love my family, right? That I'll, I'll be there for them. Like, isn't that the loving thing to do for my family is not to die? Like, I should love my family in that way. But to succumb to that temptation would be to bow to the idol of family or, fellowship, or friends. And how many people do this in our society? They think that family is most important. Family is supreme. But friends, family does not go above God. God is God. We must only worship him. Maybe some would have been tempted to bow down and maybe self-justify, you know, I'm, I'm just going to do a downward dog, you know? Like, I'm just going to be doing yoga out here. And it's like, if I do that, then it's like, I'm just, I will, I will pretend like that's not an idol and I'll pretend like this is something else and, and they self-justify themselves. My point is, and you get the point here, the point is this, idols aren't just pieces of wood and stone or gold idols are things that we have in our heart as well we set up idols all the time in our heart and worship to ourselves. for instance let me give you some examples for instance we love the idol of self-respect don't we you know you're with your neighbors or with some friends at, at work and you're all talking and it goes into a subject that is religious maybe a little controversial but it's maybe about god in some way and you know if they ask your opinion, it's going to be embarrassing, especially if it's about religious things, about the Bible and about your views. And all of them have one view. And on this side, you go, I don't, think, I don't want to answer like, any of their questions. And they turn to you and they ask you, what do you think about this? And the idol of self-respect causes you to bow, you bow down to the idol of self-respect and you maybe laugh a little bit but you want to fit in, so you just give a little vague answer to it, and you don't let them really know your view, don't really know, want them to know how you view God in the scriptures. Maybe, maybe you are sitting in front of your computer, or maybe you're some, a certain place, and you're tempted to bow to the idol of lust, and you know you shouldn't look, or you know you shouldn't do something, but you you justify in your mind that I deserve this. I've been doing really well. What's, what's this one time? What's one time? And so you serve that idol. Or you, or you bow to the idol of anger. You hold resentment to someone. You, you do not want to forgive that person. You want to hold something against them. And so you're going to, to bow and hold on to that idol. Or maybe you hold on to the idol of possessions. You love things. You want more things. Someone else has something. You wish you had that things. And so you bow in covetousness and discontentment. I think for young people in here, one of the biggest struggles that you're going to have through your childhood and teen years is bowing to the idol of acceptance, the being accepted by others, other people. The idol of acceptance looks like this. Someone says, I dare you to go do that. And you know it's wrong to do. You know it, maybe it's illegal, or maybe you're going to get in trouble with your parents, or maybe it's something that's immoral. But everyone goes, yeah, yeah, do it, yeah, do it, do it. I dare you, I dare you. And you bow to the idol of acceptance. In other words, you want to be accepted by them, so you go ahead and do it. Because you want to fit in. And the reality is that even as adults, we face this too, don't we? We want to belong. And there are two choices on the shelf, worship God or worship self. And the truth is we follow self-worship 
and worship idols like that. And I think for Christians, it's important for us to, to identify what are those idols in our heart that we are tempted to bow down to and to recognize those and then and worship to the Lord, repent and turn from that clinging to the cross of Christ. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were committed to worshiping God. It was not about what they wanted. It was not about what they felt. It was about what did God want them to do. So look at verse 8. The Bible says, Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward, and they maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. It's a great way to butter up the king. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, here we go, here's the band again, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And then here comes the ratting out, the tattletale. You can kind of hear the voice change. You know, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And of course, these men are coming because they're so concerned about the kingdom and the king, right? If you look down in verse 8, actually, you'll see that the word accused there is used. In, in the Aramaic there, that word actually literally means to, to eat in pieces or to break apart and then eat in pieces. I think that's a good illustration of a heart of self-worship right there. I mean, do you want, if you want to diagnose why the people that maybe are at your work or maybe even your family gossip about you, maybe someone tries to hurt you, you can look at it like right there. That's it right there. It's self-worship. It's, it's, it's pushing other people down so I can exalt myself up. Or it might even say, why do you do that? Self-worship. I've been doing a lot of reading, as I think I said this two weeks ago, just in, in regard to some things, some papers I'm writing, and I've been doing a lot of reading in the self-movement, um, the philosophy of the self-movement in America. And it's really been eye-opening for me to see how this self-movement is really undergirding a lot of things that are happening in our society. Our society is right now founded upon this idea of the, this therapeutic self. And it's the idea that the inner self is the most important thing. Self is the guide to life. Self determines even truth and reality. I mean, if you feel a certain way, then that is probably what is true. That's what the world teaches and so if you listen to movies and you listen to songs and even Hollywood stars, I mean, that's, that's the message that they preach, right? It's, it's look to yourself, find happiness in yourself, do what makes you feel happy, trust your feelings, that's your God. And the world has really set up self as a God. Self determines what is true. Self guides your life. Self satisfies. Friends, those are things only God should be the one in charge of. And I think that's why our society is now in a place where they, they determine truth by what you feel, by what the self feels. So it doesn't really matter what is true in our society's mind. It actually matters how I feel, and that determines what is true. So if you're a boy, 
and you feel like a girl, then that's true for you. doesn't matter what reality actually is and what your actually biology is. It's what you feel. If you, if you feel that your self-esteem is being hurt because there's kids in the class who are doing better than you, then let's go ahead and put everyone at the same academic level so that everyone feels, I guess, as bad as everybody else does because you don't want to hurt the feelings of the kids in the room. So the child in the room that has, that has a low self-esteem, his self is the god, really, of that school. And it's even come to the place where self determines what is true and it stands in judgment to other people and it can even punish them if they go against the self. And so my inner self feels a certain way. And therefore, if I feel that you are a racist or a bigot or, or sexist, then I can say that you are and that makes it true. Doesn't matter if the facts are that way or not. Because self determines what is true. And so, hey, it's true for me. And so, therefore, I can declare it's true. And even to the place, we're, gonna, we're even coming to the place where self is exalted so high as God that you can be judged for maybe even criminal offenses for saying something to someone that hurts their self, and then they, therefore, view, view it as abusive. So if you misgender someone, you're going against the self which is abusive, which therefore should be, some people's minds, should be illegal. And you see how that plays out in our society? When you exalt self to be God, then this is the result in our society. There are only really two choices in this world, and it's pleasing God, it's worshiping God, or it's worshiping self, pleasing self. And our world has gone and is going to the extreme of self-exaltation. And we as Christians must reject the worship of self. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And that is a death to self. Jesus called us to follow him. And he says to follow him first, you must deny Yourself, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. In 2 Corinthians, the Bible says Jesus came and he died for all, that those who live might, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Jesus came to live and to die, to conquer the enslavement that you have, or, or self I'm sorry, came to die so that you could be freed from the enslavement of self. There are two choices on the shelf, pleasing God and pleasing self. So look at verse 13. The Bible says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. He's a pretty angry man, isn't he? He gets angry a lot, which probably shows us what? He's a man who worships self. His blood pressure is rising. There must have been some place out there in that plain, maybe some kind of royal tent or something where he was in a throne and he was able to call people, summons people, summon people to come to him. And it, somehow these people are still all there. So it must have been during the event that this all took place. 
And so I imagine if the king is summoning, summoning someone, then everyone's probably turning their attention that way. So I, I imagine in this situation that there's these thousands of people and they're all turning their attention to this royal tent, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking in before the king. So this is, this is kind of building to a dramatic moment here. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, It is true, or is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have set up, that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall, you can kind of feel his, you know, the intensity going up, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Whoa. I mean, here he has set himself up as God. There is no God, no supernatural power greater than me. I'm the king. I am God. So King Nebuchadnezzar chose self. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Their mind was already made up. They say, we don't need a second chance. We already know our answer. We're already, we're already confident that we know what we're going to do. Let me stop right there and ask this question. Were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were they rebels against the king? I mean, it's the accusation against them, right? They're against you, king. Well, was that true? Do we find here these men defying the government? I mean, they're the original rebels against government. Well, the answer is no. I think these men represent 1 Peter 2, 13 and 17. They're exiles, like we are exiles. The Bible says that we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. And then later on it says, honor the emperor. Some people go to Daniel chapter 3, and people like to go here to kind of do the, you know, we should defy the government. Let's go against the government. We don't have to be under them. But actually, you don't see that with Daniel and with Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, their Jewish names. We don't see that. They actually are living in submission to the king. They're actually obeying the king. They're honoring the king. And so what do you see here in this text? What you see is the same motivation that caused them to honor the king is the same motivation that caused them to dishonor or to, to disobey the king. What was that? They worshiped the Lord God. I think about Jeremiah, how he wrote to these exiles, and he says, Seek the welfare of the city of Babylon, where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in, it, in, uh, for in its welfare you will find welfare. And so he, because they worship God, they're going to seek the welfare of the city, of their society, and of their king, of their emperor, but also because they worship God, if that emperor tries to get them to defy God and disobey God, they will worship God and they will only obey him. I think what we see here is a great balance in regard to how we respond to authorities. Because we worship God, we submit to our authorities. Because we worship God, we submit and we honor our authorities. But also because we worship God, 
We defy the authorities if they try to force us to disobey God. And, and we've talked about this a number of times, but just practically, it's good for us to consider what does it mean to worship God in regard to how we respond to our government. You know, it, because we worship God, I think this text and, and, and Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, and First Peter chapter 2 and Romans chapter 13, I think it teaches us that we should honor our government officials. Therefore, it's wrong for us to call them names, to post up memes that make fun of them. We are to honor them. This past week was National Police Week. And I think, church, we are to honor those who are on the front lines. We're to respect our police. In obedience to the word of God, we should seek to honor those people. I think... This was a week that you should seek to honor the police. And so let me encourage you to think about how can you do that. There's a lot of people in our country. There's a, a movement that goes against the authority in our country. It's wrong. It's unbiblical. It's ungodly. So I think, you know, for Lighthouse, we should consider what does it mean that we honor our authorities? I mean, I think, wouldn't it be great if, if all of us in this room here this week got a thank you card and went down to see me police station and said, thank you for serving our city. Wouldn't that be great? If a hundred people in here did that, a hundred people wrote that, and then Bob said, and you're welcome to come to Lighthouse anytime you want. There you go. On the other hand, because we worship God, there are times when we say, because we honor God, we can't obey the laws of the government. And I think we're coming closer and closer to that. I think there's probably going to be a day when the government says, you can't believe that and teach that from the pulpit. Or you can't be an organization and have a building like this and property like this if you say those things, if you believe and teach what the Bible says. And so they will try to force us to disobey God or to not worship the Lord, and we must humbly and courageously obey God. So look at verse 16. The Bible says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I think this is a great example of, of humble faith. I mean, he says, he will deliver us. But if not... <laughs> Be it known that we won't serve your gods. And I was thinking through this. I was thinking, where do they get this idea? Where do they get this idea? They can, in confidence, say, God will deliver us. But yet, we trust the Lord if he chooses not to. And I was looking in Isaiah, Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 says, and again, Isaiah was writing 100 years before these guys went, and he was writing to these exiles. So these would be verses that, Maybe, possibly, they would have memorized, they would have had with them, they would have been able to read. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And here, God promises them, listen, I am your God. I love you. 
I have a covenant with you, and I promise you that when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Now, is this a literal promise for any Jewish person? You know, build a little fire, walk in it, you know. No, it's not a literal promise. But what's interesting is that they took this, this picture, this teaching that God had for them, which was what? Which was that the Jews could walk through, or we're going to walk through some very difficult and impossible situations. And yet God was going to be with them. And in the, the trials might overwhelm them, but in the end, God would save them. He was their Savior, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So what's astonishing is to see that this figurative Uh, teaching here in Isaiah actually became a reality a hundred years later. And they walked in the fire and they were not consumed. Look at verse 19. The Bible says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed. It's like a two-year-old right there, right? Throwing a tantrum against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than was usually heated. And these furnaces typically had a door on the side or some kind of opening in the side, and they had these flues on the top. So if you close all the flues, it gets hotter. So this had to be some period of time. I mean, you don't just heat up something like that, right? So there's this kind of building you see, this dramatic end that, that King Nebuchadnezzar wants. I think he's trying to make a point to these men, but they're going to die, probably to everyone else standing around. Verse 20, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the, the burning, fiery furnace. These men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. In other words, they're wearing all their clothes. And they were thrown into the fiery, the burning fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men. These big SEAL Team 6 men here were killed who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Oh boy, that's the end, isn't it? You can feel the, you can sense the quietness of the crowds as these men are led to this fiery furnace and these big old honking, you know, soldiers come and they are going to throw these men in there and this is going to be the end. The king is going to show his power. No one can save you guys from my hand. I am greater than any god. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. I'm not going to go against the king on that one. He answered and said, but I see four men bound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. The appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Now think about these supernatural things that are happening here. These guys are thrown in with all their clothes. They're bound up. When they go into the fire, the ropes are burned off, but they're not burned. In fact, they don't even have the smell of smoke on them. We'll find out later on. They're able to stand in a fire without oxygen. You realize there's not a lot of oxygen in fires, right? And they're able to breathe in there. In fact, Jewish tradition says in the Septuagint, there's some notes that they have for the Jewish um, commentaries, and they say that when they got in there, they started to sing. Can you imagine that scene? Can you imagine if you're out there and it's kind of this hush as you see these three men thrown in there, and all of a sudden there's this, this singing coming from the fiery furnace? 
And then there's another supernatural work. Because he looked in and he saw something that looked like one of the gods walking around. Now, we, I believe this was a Christophany. This was Jesus Christ pre-incarnate in there with him. We don't know that for certain. It seems likely that was the case. It could have just been an angel. But Jesus has done this in the past. In the Old Testament, he, he appeared to his Jewish people at different times. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, just think of the craziness of this. <laughs> like you're, you're calling out to people who are in a fire. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God. Oh, now he recognizes it. He's not the high God anymore. Come out and come here. Notice that king, the king recognizes that he is not the one that is the most supreme God is. I don't, this is not a conversion moment for him, okay? So he's a polytheist. I think he goes from being a polytheist to what they call a henotheist, which means this. He now believes in many gods, and now there's a really big God. So this just means that now Yahweh is the best of all the gods. Look at verse 27. The satraps and the prefects and the governors and the kings. So everyone starts coming around these guys, you know, expecting them. And the king's counselors gathered together so that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not, was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed. And no smell of fire had come upon them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered these, his servants, who, and notice that, who, Trusted in him. I love how a spiritually blind, ignorant king conceived they were saved by faith, not by their works. And set, up, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins he really knows how to put the punishments out there, doesn't he? <laughs> For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. And that's the point. There's one God, only he can save. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Really, there are two choices in this world. Each day we live with the choice to worship God or worship self. In the New Testament, we find out that each person is born into this world with this old, sinful self. King James calls it the old man. Colossians 3 says that the old, sinful self produces works like sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and covetousness and anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk. And the reality is as someone who serves the God of self as a person who also is controlled by these things right here, by these sins. The Bible says as well, in Colossians 3, 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. The world worships self. And the Bible says there'll be a day when each person will give an account to God for that abominable worship. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he came in to conquer the self and to make us a new person, a new self.
And so that's why Galatians says this. I've been crucified with Christ. In other words, my old self has been crucified. Christ has applied the, 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 the Holy Spirit has applied the, applied the life and death and resurrection of Jesus to my life. I've been crucified with Christ. Now I'm a new person. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the beautiful, the beautiful work of Jesus Christ is that he saves your soul, he gives you eternal life, and he makes you into a worshiper of God. I think the question I'd like to ask for all of us in here, church, all of us who are claim to be worshipers of God, is are we living a daily life of worship and worship of him? Are we living each day presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God? Are we truly living in the worship of the Lord? Let's pray. as we bow our hearts before the Lord. I want to ask each one of you to examine your heart. I ask each one of us to look into our own heart and ask God to show us if there's any wicked way in us. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us the idols that we, we cherish, that we hold on to, that we worship. Maybe you're a person in here who doesn't know the Lord as your personal Savior. And I want to invite you to turn to the Lord, Jesus Christ, and trust in him. Father, we are so thankful that Jesus Christ, your son, came into this world so that we don't have to be left to ourselves, to our own sin, to our own unrighteousness. Thank you. Father, that we can be rescued from ourselves. And I pray for that person in here who in their heart are wrestling. He or she is wrestling with you. They are enslaved to the God of self. I pray, Lord, that you will break the bonds of their sin. I pray you'll open their eyes to the truth. I pray that, God, they will be saved. For us as a church, Lord, we can so easily fall back into the ways of this old self, this old man. We live our lives. We can live our lives for ourselves. We can exist within our home thinking that the home should revolve around me, people should serve me, and ultimately, God, you should serve us. And that is wrong, Lord. It's wicked. So, Lord, I pray for the grace to turn from that and turn to you. We pray in Jesus' name.